Hi, uh, good evening. Uh, thanks for joining again um, for Dr. Sarah Zager's class, A Set Table. Um, we're going to be wrapping up our look at um, domestic labor in Jewish texts. I believe uh, this week is on hired uh, household labor, which, uh, yeah, I've really been looking forward to this one. Um, yeah, so see, you know, hi, John, with your uh, camera on. Of course, we always like that. If it's not possible, that's okay. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, I'll uh, leave it to you, Dr. Zager. Okay, wonderful. Um, it's very nice to see everyone for this third and last session, which I'm afraid will leave you with even fewer conclusions than you had in the previous two sessions. Um, but hopefully we'll raise some interesting questions about hired household labor. Um, I decided that because there's a lot on, I could have given the whole three-part series on hired household labor, um, that I would focus mostly on childcare related questions because I think there's some really compelling sources about those questions in, in the Gemara. And so I wanted to kind of use that as a way of talking more broadly about um, the, the sort of forms of intimacy that can come when someone uh, is involved in caring for your children or caring for other parts of your household. Um, so that is really the, the goal of where we're going to go. Um, and we're going to sort of proceed to this year, I think, kind of moves in three parts. The first part is a little kind of tagline, tag on to last week that will sort of transition us from thinking about judging and childcare and the relationship between the two to um, to thinking about uh, various forms of non-parent child carers, let's say. Um, and then we'll dive into a, a pretty like beefy and a little bit challenging discussion of breastfeeding in Ketubot um, and talk about breastfeeding and also about um, uh, uh, wet nurses. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, okay. Sorry, they're not cooperating with me today. Um, and then finally, we will uh, turn to a kind of more theological approach to thinking about what is the relationship between, uh, what, what's kind of the meaning or significance of a non-parent uh, non childcare. And so we'll, we'll do some, some biblical text, some fun midrash, and a little bit of very modern Jewish thought uh, as well. So it should be a fun ride. Um, so with that, I will share my screen and we'll get started. Okay, everybody sees the shared screen? Give me a thumbs up for those of you with your cameras on. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, and it's a size you can actually read because Faria makes things huge. Okay, wonderful. So um, I wanted to start with this Gemara and Sanhedrin because it actually explicitly, like last week, we spent a lot of time thinking about um, what the experience of caring for children might have to do with being a judge. And the assumption was that it was really the experience of being a parent. Um, but this text actually opens up a wider range of experiences with a really in a really interesting way. Um, so I'm going to read just because it's, it's like long and, and beefy. Um, and I want us to just focus really on that, that little connection. So Ktiv. All right, it's written, and I charge your judges at this time, and it also says, and I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So this is a kind of classic Dvarim kind of problem where it seems like there's a redundancy, or at least, or potentially even a, 
contradiction, right? Because it seems like on the one hand, God is doing the commanding, and then on the other hand, the judges are doing the commanding. So how is that supposed to make any sense? Rabbi Elazar says that Rabbi Simlai says, Moses issued a warning to the community that the awe of the judge must be upon them. And Moses issued a warning to the judge that he must bear the burden of the community. So that bearing the burden should already kind of be ringing in your ears if you know your Tanakh, because that, that sort of I can't bear this burden is actually language that Moshe himself uses to talk about the experience of being stuck with these difficult, uh, difficult people in the desert. Right. So up to what degree does the judge have to bear the burden of the people, whatever that means? Rabbi Hanan and some say Rabbi Shabtai said it is as it, it is as Moses said when he talks about carrying Israel as a nursing father carries a suckling child. And the word that's used here um, for for the nursing father is Haumein. And there is a, a general sense in the scholarly literature that omen and omenet is a non-parent who's caring for the child in some way, often hired, but can also be non-hired. So the metaphor here is that a judge is acting as sort of in loco parentis. A judge is the child carer who comes in and as their job has to take care of the people and often can't do so. And Moshe, when he describes himself in that way, here it's sort of presented as if it's positive, but we'll see in a minute that actually in its original context in Bamidbar, it's not so obviously positive. Um, it's actually something that might be negative or at least complicated. Great. Um, so questions or thoughts about that before we move on? Just that comparison. Okay, so, so we saw last week, there's this linking between being uh, a parent and being um, a judge, but actually this Gemara takes it even further and says it's not only a linking between a, being a parent and judge, but being actually someone who's, who's doing childcare in some other way, right? So just so we see the original context, I get someone to just read in the language of your selection, Bamidbar Yoda Aleph. Uh, read. Oh, okay. okay. Randy, go ahead, Randy. Randy, you go this time. And okay. Okay. In uh, English. And Great. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt with your servant? And why have I not enjoyed your favor that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Did I produce all this people? Did I engender them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a caregiver carries an infant? to the land that you have promised an oath to your fathers. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot carry all this people by myself for it is too much for me. Right, so I want us here to just really focus on the word omin again, um, which, hold on, I will highlight for you in one second. Um, and the idea is that Often this, this verse is read as the role of the omen is a burdensome, difficult, and problematic role. It's not a good role to be in. Um, and even when, when, when Moshe is saying to God, I didn't give birth to these people, and I'm not even paid to take care of them, there's a sense, I think, 
implicitly that if he had given birth to them, he would have more responsibility for them and maybe the most responsibility. And if he were um, to be the caregiver, he would be also implicated, but perhaps in a more attenuated or complex way. That's often how this the, these verses have been read in terms of understanding who is the care who is this Omain who is this caregiver um, and why why are they um, why are they why is that negative potentially or how is it how is it understood by by the biblical text? Okay, so with that in the background, just as a sense that this this image of the child care is one that's deployed as in order to kind of explain other things and is often deployed as a kind of burdensome uh, burdensome task is I think it should be in the background as we think about what it means to pay someone to take on childcare labor because childcare labor is often, you know, quite, quite intensely, um, quite, you know, quite intensely difficult in lots of ways. And also there might be something particularly challenging about caring for a child that isn't necessarily your own in whatever sense you, you understand that term. So that's enough background, I think, or sort of transition point to transition, to go into the meat of what I wanna to talk to you about today. No pun intended about Moshe needing to give people meat. Um, I wanna talk about how the rabbis understand wet nursing and how they understand what's at stake in hiring someone to be a wet nurse. Um, so a little bit of background in this period, it was relatively common to hire a wet nurse to breastfeed a child, um, but it was often, it carried a particular social stamp marking. So it often tended to be that people of a higher social standing would be able to afford a wet nurse to pay someone to, to nurse their child. But on the other hand, there was some, especially in the Greco-Roman world, it was very common to, to outsource this labor, but there was also some uh, kind of, much in the same way we see today, some negative discourse about women who choose to do that as quote unquote, abandoning their, their important duties. So in a way, the social context is not that different from our own, um, but, that it, but instead of, let's say, using formula, you were hiring uh, someone to, to do this job. And we see obviously biblical examples of that as well. Um, but here in the Mishnah and Ketubot, we're actually talking about what are the kind of obligations of a mother to a child in the course of a marriage and how does her husband's preferences play into that concern. So this, I think, will give us a model for thinking about what's at stake in deciding to have someone pay someone to do something as intimate as breastfeed a child. Um, and maybe that can be a jumping off point for thinking more broadly about hiring uh, household labor. So, um, okay, Desmond, you're up to read this Mishnah in Tubot. Um, yeah, it's a little long, so I will stop you along the way. Okay. And these are tasks that a wife must perform for her husband. She grinds wheat into flour and bakes and washes clothes, cooks and nurses her child, makes her husband's bed and makes thread from wool by spinning it. If she brought him one maidservant, in other words, brought the maidservant with her into the marriage, the maidservant will perform some of these tasks. Consequently, the wife does not need to grind and does not need to bake and does not need to wash clothes. 
If she brought him two maidservants, she does not need to cook and does not need to nurse her child if she does not want to, but instead may give the child to a wet nurse. If she brought him three maidservants, she does not need to make his bed and does not need to make thread from wool. If she brought him four maidservants, she may sit in a chair, cathedra, like a queen and not do anything as her maidservants do all of her work for her. Whoa. Okay, so stop there before we go on to the whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at that hierarchy. It'd be interesting to write that out. Like I thought that the child was gonna be the most important, but no, when you bring in the fourth servant, that's only then when you don't have to make his bed, which means making his bed is even more important than nursing the child. Wild, right? Okay, yeah, so there's a lot going on in this list. First of all, let's just back up one second, right? In the course of a kind of classical marriage, imagined in the eyes of the Mishnah, a woman owes her husband certain forms of labor. And she can perform them in one of two ways. She can either perform them herself, or if she comes into the marriage with a maidservant, i.e. a woman who is a slave, basically, um, she can then have that person do the job and she doesn't have to do it herself. So the Mishnah is telling you basically, and if she doesn't do these things, that's grounds for divorce. So this is kind of important family law questions. Yeah, but implicit in this is a hierarchy of what's most important or maybe what's most important for her to do herself as opposed to hiring out to someone else. So what do we make of the fact that, that right, nursing the child is kind of sandwiched in, in the middle and it's only once she gets to the fourth main servant that she's allowed to, to not make the bed. What does that imply about, about those, those forms of tasks? Desmond's just shaking her head. Why are you shaking? What, what's so like, what's disturbing about that? Just like, it's useful, I think, to, to spell it out. Because I think we know now, and I think any mother knows from being with her child that, I, I, that your bond with your child is, negatively affected if you need to or have to let someone else take on that role. You know, there's that closeness when you're holding your child for all those feedings. You know, it's like the smell of you that your child associates with sustenance. So it's just sad to me that these other tasks that don't have that kind of bonding intimacy that leads to trust and all kinds of things that are formative for human beings, that it doesn't rank as high as some of these other tasks that to me, it doesn't seem like it matters who does them. Right, so I think what's implied here is that it does matter to this Mishnah who does them. And that maybe, right, the, the form of intimacy that's created by performing these kinds of labor, actually, right, there's an intimacy between the husband and wife about the making the bed that is getting put in a different place from feeding the child. Now, I think it's important not to project too much of our own, I mean, I said initially there's a kind of similarity between our modern position and, and these, these texts, but I think it's important not to pro project too, too much because one of the things that's that's written about a lot in um, in literature about this period is that children 
die at much higher rates in the rabbinic period than they do today, Baruch Hashem. And that means that, right, not that it was good that they died at higher rates then, but it's better that they die at lower rates now. Um, that means that children are seen differently often. And the kind of intensity of the maternal bond is thought about differently often in many ancient texts, or a lot of scholars like think that that's the case. Whether we agree with them, I'll leave open. Um, but there is a view that like only in modernity when infant survival is much, much higher, do we have this intense emphasis on, on the bond between mother and child. What, what else is really striking here is that it's not, there's not like what's missing from this list, any other form of childcare behavior, right? She's got to nurse the baby, but that obviously is a, is a narrow set of the other kinds of things that need to be done. Okay. Anyone else have thoughts or comments about this before we keep going? I have one more question. I yeah. can see that maybe the making the bed has something special, husband, wife, something special, but making thread from wool, can you explain to me why? Yeah, what, that so, could be yeah. What's, what's about, what's up with making thread from wool? Um, there's, I, I have sort of two guesses, which are just that, they're guesses. One is, well, making thread from wool is a kind of stand-in for producing something economically that, that's economically valuable, right? Because she can, she makes, right, just to spell it all out in the eyes of the Mishnah, she makes stuff that's of, of economic value, that value goes to the husband. So I think, now, is that, does that create the same kind of intimacy as breastfeeding? Like, no, probably not but it's a different kind of sort of participating in the life of the family, the life of the household. Um, yeah, I mean, cooking, I think we can all argue both ways that maybe cooking creates a kind of intimacy. Um, certainly like in the eyes of the rabbis, cooking does create intimacy and that's precisely why we're really worried about, you know, um, non-Jews cooking, cooking food for Jews because we think that that actually creates some kind of they think that creates some kind of intimacy that then could lead to, you know, um, forms of intermarriage that they're uncomfortable with. So, yeah, I think the other the other answer comes from Rabbi Eliezer, and you're gonna like it less. So keep reading. Rabbi Eliezer says, even if she brought him a hundred maid servants, he can compel her to make thread from wool, since idleness leads to licentiousness. Consequently, it is better for a woman to be doing some kind of work. Yeah, don't, okay. So that's that's the, the trans, translation interpolating, just like forget that you read that and keep going. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says, even one who vows that his wife is prohibited from doing any work must divorce her and give her the payment for her marriage contract since idleness leads to idiocy. Yeah, so idiocy, I think, as a, again, I'm, I'm using this Faria translation here, but I think idiocy is a problematic word, but it's some sort of like psych, psychological problem, let's say that. There's something, you, you will lose your mind if you just sit around. So the answer Rabbi Eliezer is going to give you about the spinning of wool, right? I said it's about economic productivity, but it also might be about something you can use to fill your time. 
it's a sort of right and if you think about like often spinning of wool is often like kind of connected to like women gossiping while they're spinning there's something like kind of lived uh it, it's a sort of it's like occupying your time in order to fill a gap and it doesn't necessarily require your full attention but it requires some attention and you're going to be doing it part of the way so there's a sense on the one hand that women need to be working and a sense on the other hand that maybe there's an economic status that comes with women not working um and that then we need like placeholder household labor to fill in the household labor that they're going to contract to someone else because you know right in this in this economic picture she's not going to be doing some other okay that's the basic picture of this Mishnah. Anyone have questions about this Mishnah before we go on to the Tosefta? Okay, I'm just gonna check the chat for one second. Yeah, I have one more question. So yeah. to fulfill both of those things. So for status, you don't do anything on this list, but you're also obligated to work. So what were the make work things they did to satisfy the requirement to be busy with something but that it wasn't essential work in order to satisfy the status requirement. Yeah, right, that there's something, right. So what's going on here is this, this balance, which we're gonna see negotiated also with the wet nursing specifically, which is what we're gonna focus on, that the assumption that um, on the one hand, the woman needs to be doing something because she's gonna lose her mind from boredom on, on the one hand, just to like spell it out really intensely. And on the other hand, it can't be too much or too necessary a kind of labor, because if it's too necessary a kind of labor, then she's not actually sitting on the chair like a queen anymore. She's kind of getting her hands dirty on something necessary. So do we have examples though? Do we have examples of those things? Of, of what they would be doing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think spinning of wool is like the classic um, and these other kinds of like handy crafty tasks. Okay. And right? then I also think just, about like, you know, um, it, you can think about it also in, in other periods of history, right? Women who, you know, are very good at playing the piano forte. Right? And embroidery and... <laughs> right, or they like the embroidery. Those kinds of tasks were the most common. Um, so what's the timing of Aisha's Heil, which clearly is of the view of the more she does, the better. Right, right. Okay, good. So Aisha's Heil, right, is a biblical text which predates this by several centuries. Um, and is a different sort of model, right? Of, of what a woman would be doing and what it's good for a woman to be doing um, then is put forward in this mission for sure. Okay, so now we're gonna see the, um, we're gonna see the Tosefta, which is parallel to this, but takes a little bit of a different tack. Can I get someone to read this Tosefta? I could. Great. Rabbi Huda says, he also can't force her to work with flax since it lacerates the mouth and stiffens the lips. If she vowed to not nurse her son, Beit Shammai says, remove her breast from his mouth. But Beit Hillel says, he can force her to nurse. If she is divorced, they cannot force her to nurse. If she is divorced, but her son recognizes her, they pay her wages and she nurses him because of the danger to the child since he may not accept breast milk from another woman. 
A man cannot force his wife to nurse the son of his fellow, and a wife can't force her husband to allow her to nurse the son of her fellow. Okay, so this Tosefta deals with, and I've, I've cut it so there's, there's more detail here, but it deals with the parts of it that, that are going to be most important for understanding the Gemara we're going to look at. This Tosefta describes cases of what it is that the husband is able to force the wife to do or to not do. And on the one hand, he can't force her to do things that are going to be physically disfiguring, right? Flax, apparently, um, lacerates the mouth and stiffens the lips, I think, because you're using it to kind of like point it. Um, and on the one hand, now we're going to get this like machloket beit shamay beit hillel about breastfeeding, which is tacked onto the statement of Rabbi Yehuda. And I think it's important to see that they kind of go together because one of the things that happens that might be motivating, and we'll see this um, in, in the name of some of the other sources in a minute, one of the things that might be motivating the woman to say, I don't want to breastfeed, I want to send that out to a wet nurse, is because actually that labor is physically disfiguring in her, her mind or the husband's mind. Right, so Beit Shammai is going to say, if she says, if she takes a vow, now just two minutes on like the rabbinic mechanisms of vows, right? If a woman is married and she takes a vow, the husband has the, under particular circumstances, the husband generally has the right to nullify the vows that she takes. So for Beit Shammai to come in and say, if she vows not to nurse her son, take his, you know, sort of pull the baby away, that implies that for that particular vow, actually the husband is not in a position to nullify the vow. That's very unusual as a general, in, in comparison to the rest of rabbinic law. So that's a big claim that, that Beit Shammai is, is making. On the other hand, Beit Hillel is gonna say, we can force her to do it, i.e. the husband can force her to do it. Which obviously comes with all kinds of hierarchical uh, Assumption. So, right, we talked a little bit about a hierarchy of like what labor is most important, but we didn't talk about the kind of big underlying important hierarchy in some ways in the Mishnah, which is that the husband oh, is owed all of this labor um, from the wife. And, this, and the same is true here, but more intensely in Beit Hillel's mind, where actually the husband can, for, can demand and force um, the woman to nurse a child, even if she doesn't want to. And interestingly, if she's divorced, right, then we can't force her. But if the son recognizes her and the son is only going, or the child is only going to nurse with that, with her, then we basically pay her as if she's a wet nurse for her own kid. Questions, thoughts, concerns, outrage, confusion about this, this text. So one thing that's, that I think you're gonna see set up here is that being, um, that the question of who gets to be, to have to nurse their child and who decides to have a wet nurse is something that either the man or the woman might choose to advocate for of e either position. And they might be comfortable only with either position. Um, and then the question is sort of who wins out. And that's going to be the big question in our Gemara, right? And it's worth noting that the Mishnah, as we saw it, 
doesn't open up this possibility. The Mishnah basically says, look, these are the five forms of labor she owes. If she brought these servants, she can get out of it. End of story. This Tosefta opens up a much wider range of, of options, of ways that this, this conversation could play out. I see there's some things in the chat. Okay. Yeah. What happens if the child is a daughter um, as opposed to the son? Good. Um, we're going to see the Gemara answer that question um, in just a moment. Um, but yeah, we'll get there. Um, and we'll see, we'll see also the Rambam kind of Paskin on that, on that issue. So hold on to your hats. Okay, cool. Wait, how so about the is... fellow part? The fellow part you didn't address. Who exactly do they mean by the fellow of a man or the fellow of a woman? Yeah, who is this fellow? I think it's just somebody else in their life, right? It's, it's right, it's just their chaver. It's like their, right? I mean, even the woman's fellow is like an awkward translation because it's feminine in the Hebrew. So then like, why are they translating it that way? Um, but I think the, the the basic idea is like, I know someone else who needs Oh, basically, you can't be a wet nurse um, or even a wet nurse for free um, of another child if the husband doesn't want it and vice versa. So that's actually, I think, the case in which you see the clearest sort of competing claim, if that makes sense. Great. Okay. So now um, we will see this Gemara and Ketubot. We're going to go slowly. And see how the, the voice of the Gemara is sort of playing with the Mishnah and Josefta and trying to kind of draw out some complexities that might kind of bubble up between the husband and wife as these interactions go forward. Okay, who, who would like to read? I'll read because I'm confused on this one. Good. Bob Huna said, Rav Huna Bar Hinana tested us asking if she says she wants to nurse and he says he does not want her to nurse, but rather to give the child to a wet nurse, we accede to her desires as she is the one suffering. How okay, is pause the there. Suffering? Say again? How is she the one suffering? Great. So we're going to see two versions of this question, two answers from Rashi and the Rambam. But before that, I want to hear your guesses. Who is suffering and why? Well, she's suffering, i.e. the mother. What, what suffering are we talking about? Like, let's, let's put it on the table. She says she wants to nurse. So she's not suffering unless he forbids her. So why right. does he say she's suffering? Right. So one reading is she's the one who would suffer if we, if he forbids her from nursing the child, she would feel miserable because this is like a deeply emotionally laden thing and he's taking it away from her. Oh, okay. Right? That's one reading that's out there. Um, anyone else have another reading? Yeah, I mean, you could say suffering is just um, the pain if you're, um, if you're um, breastfeeding and you know, you're, you're not emptying your breasts if um, just, Great. just that pain. Right. So maybe right, breastfeeding is often, I'm told, a physically painful process. And actually, that's the pain that we're talking about. And so it doesn't make sense 
to say that the husband gets to decide whether she does this painful thing. In fact, she gets to decide because it's in her body. So there's sort of two ways, at least two ways of reading it. And which one of those you're going to choose, I think, will, will end up telling you something about what kinds of power the woman is given in this situation, but also how we think about the labor that we're then paying the wet nurse to do, right? Because if we think that the, the wet nurse is basically gonna develop a like nice happy attachment to the child, then we might have one picture of wet nursing. And if we think actually one of the main things that's gonna happen in wet nursing is the, the wet nurse is gonna experience some pretty intense potentially physical pain, then that also has, should have, I think, serious implications for how we think about paying someone to do that job. Is that clear? Questions? I don't buy that because I think what Randy was saying is what happens is right after you give birth, your breasts become engorged. And so if the baby dies, for example, you know, you're in extreme pain because the breasts aren't empty. Nursing relieves the pain. So yeah, for some people, I think for other people, you know, you can have horrible mastitis and then it doesn't relieve the pain, right? Like, right. But, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to me that, like, I can think of other reasons to feel for a wet nurse, mostly that they get attached to these kids that they keep, you know, having to pass on. And also that, you know, historically, women were often wet nurses when their own baby had died after it was born. And so it's very emotionally hard. Your baby died and now you're nursing somebody else's baby. So I could Right, but I, I also think it's worth naming that like for some of these women, just right, if you think about simple things like the kinds of nutrition available in the second century, that there are kinds of, that being a wet nurse was a pretty high stakes venture in certain ways and would have phys- been really physically taxing for a lot of women. Anyway, okay. So she is, now I just want to throw out one other reading, which no one suggests in this. Uh, so the two versions you saw are the kind of the two classic, or two reasons you came up with are the two classical ones. The one I want to throw out there, which maybe is too crazy, is um, the tsar, like the pain from doing this actually comes from just like her whole life is taken up by, the, like the way breastfeeding interrupts the other activities that she might be trying to undergo or the other things she's trying to do. Right. So the pain isn't necessarily like a physical pain or a like emotional separation, but actually just like this is really it's sort of taking over and making it really difficult for her to do other things, which I think is often a very contemporary uh, trouble that's associated with breastfeeding, but also might be might be uh, present in the ancient world as well. Okay, so here. Right before we said, we're basically poskening quietly sort of with Shammai, not quite because it's not really a Ned there. So maybe it has slightly different structure, but here we're saying, we give her, we listen to what she's, we, we listen to what she wants because it's basically about her or about her body in some, some potential, some important way. Okay, but we're now gonna ask a different question, which is, what happens if right before we had a question of she says she wants to, he says, send her to a wet nurse, send the child to a wet nurse. 
However, if he says that he wants her to nurse and she says that she does not want to nurse, what is the halacha? He then narrowed the scope of the question. Anywhere that she is not accustomed, we accede to her desires. However, if she is accustomed to nursing and he is not accustomed, what is the halakha? Do we follow his wishes to follow her family custom or do we follow her wishes to follow, wait, what? Follow his family custom. Okay, so let's stop here because the logic is getting tricky. So there's two, two things we need to understand before we go on. The first is there's a general concern about, right? Remember I said there's a sort of social status piece here. So when we're talking about who's accustomed, what we what they mean is someone who is you, comes from a family where normally women nurse their own babies or from a family where normally that labor is hired out. Right? This is I think a good place to think about contemporary situations where maybe in certain socioeconomic worlds it's very normal to hire out a certain kind of labor and in other socioeconomic worlds it's really not normal to hire out a certain kind of labor. We can all think of examples of that. Um, so the idea is imagine a scenario where the first, the first scenario is an easy one. Everyone is going according to their customs, right? In her family, um, if she's not accustomed, she comes from a family where everybody nurses their own baby, then she gets to nurse her own baby. Now imagine the following scenario. She comes from a family where they don't nurse their own babies. Rather, no, she comes from a family where she, um, I got it backwards, okay. She is, if she comes in a family where people don't, where they're usually wet nurses, then we follow her, what she wants to do, we get a wet nurse. If she is, comes from a family where normally there are wet nurses and he comes from a family where he's, there normally aren't wet nurses, but we have a scenario where actually the, the husband wants to go according to her family custom and she wants to go according to the husband's family custom. So there's been like a little swap. Everybody thinks the way that their in-laws do it is better. Does that make sense? Wait, it's not clear here whether when it says accustomed, whether it's referring to accustomed to nursing or accustomed to wet nurses. It doesn't say. Yeah, so it can be either one, but it's just, I, I, no, I think it is, um, it's accustomed to nursing. That's just what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The translation makes that tricky. But okay. So there's a conflict. Like if, if she is her normal way of doing things to nurse her own child, then she nurses her own child. Okay. So the question is, what do we do in a scenario where there's a potential conflict between the two parties? And we might resolve that by going back to family custom. But let's imagine a scenario where everybody says, that they're the opposite family custom is better. Ah, right. So I I say that right. The the wife says the husband's family custom is better, and the husband says the wife's family custom is better. Again, not a like tremendously difficult scenario to imagine, especially when you think about this as like also something to do with social status. If you have more social status, you're going to hire out more labor. You're going to have a wet nurse, but there's a kind of intimacy involved in in nursing obviously. Okay. So the question is, who do we follow? And we answered his question from this Amoraic statement. When a woman marries a man, she ascends with him to his socioeconomic status. 
if it is higher than hers, but she does not descend with him if his status is lower. Rabbi okay. Elazar said- Let's, Before we get to Rabbi Elazar, yeah. who's gonna be also our like a, a key figure here. Um, what, what does this mean when we say a woman ascends with him in socioeconomic status, but she doesn't descend with him? It means that whatever her, she, she can only go up, right? So if, but she does go up. So if either party comes from a family where the custom is to have a wet nurse, then we assume that for this marriage, the baseline assumption is that we have a wet nurse. And then the question is under what circumstances can we override? So, right, initially we said, if the woman comes from a family where normally everybody has a wet nurse and she doesn't want one, then we say, great, she can, we, she can do whatever she wants. Now we're asking, what about a, the, the husband's family? The answer is basically, if either family has this high socioeconomic status, then that, that's the baseline we go off of, but the woman can still kind of override it. So in a certain way, she's actually given a fair amount of agency here about what she, she wants to do. Even as this text, it's kind of constantly um, denying that she gets, constantly calling into question her ability to choose. Okay. Rabbi Elazar is like where, where, the, where the real fun begins. Rabbi Elazar said, there is a hint to this principle from here as she was the mother of all living, which indicates that she was given to her husband for living with him, but was not given to suffer pain with him. Okay. So here, here the pain comes in back in the back door. There's something about, right, whereas initially we had pain associated with breastfeeding, either physical pain, emotional pain, maybe. Um, here we're going to get her pain comes from having to do more work than she ought to have to do, or at least that then she is used to doing, and that that can be a painful experience, and she's protected against that, even if she marries someone of quote-unquote lower socioeconomic status. Okay, great. Uh, just comprehension questions about that before we say something about it. somebody's got one in the chat yeah good right so normally the wife is required to follow her husband's customs but exception is when it's a serve shalom bayis so yeah there is that right the general assumption for like lots of halakhic matters is often that the wife follows the husband's customs but in this case i think that sort of amps up the intensity of what's going on here which is we're taking much more seriously where she came from that being said, I think there's a there's a kind of distinction to be made here between matters of minhag, of kind of halachic custom, as opposed to socioeconomic status. And the wet nursing is really understood as being about socioeconomic status much more than, than other things. Does that principle of status mobility have other implications? I think it does for things like um, how how we deal with like various property that she brings into the marriage and takes out of the marriage. Um, those kinds of family law questions, it, it does pop up again. Uh, right, because they're, right, Rebbe Elazar is bringing uh, this principle from somewhere else to just like kind of slot it in for this purpose. Okay, so just so you see, um, 
two interpretations. I'll read the Rashi, right? On, on it's her pain that's considered, and that's why we decide we go with what she wants. Um, the first answer is, right, she has a lot of milk in her breasts and it's painful for her, i.e. her breasts are engorged and that hurts. And therefore, if you take the child away, that will be, that will be painful. Um, maybe, or maybe the process of breastfeeding is itself painful. And, you know, I don't know if they had like Epsom salts or whatever in the age of, uh, in the age of, of, of Rashi, but like that there, there were these kind of folk remedies to like dry up, dry up milk. Okay. The Rambam, as you'll see, has a different reading. Um, it's also interesting just to see how he poskins this. Uh, can I get someone to read the Rambam? I could. Great. <clears throat> if she gives birth to twins, we do not force her to nurse both of them. Rather, she nurses one of them and the husband hires someone else to nurse the second. If a woman wants to nurse her friend's child along with her own, the husband can intervene and stop her so that she only nurses her own child. Okay, what's missing from this last clause? What if she doesn't have a child of her own uh, and she wants to nurse her friend's child? Great. I hadn't thought of that one, but yes, that's not brought up. But what case was brought up in the Tosefta that the Ramam like explicitly excludes here? The husband up. also having a, a person that he wants Beautiful, his wife to right? breastfeed. Yeah. So the Rambam, for whatever reason, isn't going to talk about that case, which I think is really interesting. Probably he doesn't imagine a scenario where the husband is asking that. He imagines that that's something a woman would ask. On the other hand, right, we can all come up with a scenario where like, I don't know, the husband's sister needs something, something like that. Um, but it's not, it's not something that he's going to bring up. And he poskins it pretty clearly. The husband can intervene, can stop her um, so that she only is nursing one child. And clearly, right, once we get to the stuff about twins, the assumption is that there, there's something, you know, it's going to be difficult, basically, for her to, to nurse two children. Okay. Keep going. If she takes a vow not to nurse, we do not force her. And a wet nurse is hired until the child is 24 months old, whether the child is male or female. Or female. If she Great. says- So somebody, Ozzy, asked that question before, is there a distinction between a, a, a male child and a female child? At least for the Ramam, the answer is no. Um, if she says, I want to nurse my child, but he does not want her to nurse because he does not want her to become ugly, even if she has several maidservants, we listen to her because it is painful for her to separate from her child. Great. So what's happened with the Ramam here is, even though he, I said to you, he doesn't bring all of that to a sefta, he's got some of the mindset of that to a sefta, of this concern about, right, if the concern of the flaxseed is it's going to deform her, her lips or something, the concern here is that breastfeeding, breastfeeding will deform her in one way or another, um, and that that's a valid concern for um, the husband, that's a concern that the husband might have, but it's not one that's going to lead us to say that the husband is allowed to intervene and stop her because it's painful for her to be separated from the child. So those again are those, those are the two kind of initial readings that we, that we saw um, that suggest that there might be some like problem or pain associated with, uh, with taking the child away. Anyone else, else have questions about this rumbo?
Is he pulling 24 months just from his best medical judgment? I think, um, I think that there is rabbinic basis for saying that. Yeah, I think he's not, he's not getting it from nowhere. I mean, or from his medical judgment. Um, I think there, there is basis elsewhere. And I think Nita for saying that that's the standard. Yeah, if I remember correctly. Um, so I think one thing that this set of sources brings up is the question of what's the relationship between what a lot of like modern scholars call the third, like an extra party who is going to be brought into a situation um, to take care of, of a child, or maybe we might even, you know, expand it to say taking care of, of someone who's not a child. Um, and that there might be a kind of intimacy that comes with that. There might be a kind of pain of separation that comes with it. But at the same time, those are decisions that you often have to make. Um, and they come with both economic and social, so, social uh, challenges. Um, and the Gemara is really aware of those. And actually, this is one of the places in, in sort of the economic halacha of marriage where a woman has the most power, um, even as she is sort of limited in what she can do in lots of other areas. The fact that she's actually able to say like, no, I'm in control of my own body and I'm in control of my own like emotional life and therefore you gotta do what I say actually creates a fair amount of, of openness. Yeah, power, yes, um, great. So in a way, I think this is a kind of empowering story. On the other hand, I think, you know, the one thing that, um, a teacher of mine, Rabbi Miriam Simmel Walfish, has written about about this sugya is that the the verb kofet or kofin um, is an unusual word to describe what a husband can demand of a wife, and so there is actually a way in which the often right it's often like she is obligated to give him X, but not we are able to force her to do X. Um, and that that actually may imply some sort of less, less, less power than we might, than we might as modern readers want to find in this text. Um, but I think one of the things that's really valuable about this is that it just, it highlights the ways in which um, hiring household labor can be a source of potential complexity and tension between, not between partners also because of the social and political economic implications that those decisions bring with them. Not certainly true in our own day as well. So I want to close this, close this session and close this series with, um, uh, we might not see all of the texts in this section, but with the suggestion that, as I've just read that, the we, we've talked a lot about the problematics of hiring someone to do, uh, do intimate care work. Um, and I want to also suggest that there's a way in which actually that challenge can also be productive and is seen as productive by the tradition. Um, so I want to start with um, with one model, and we might only see this model. We might we might see others. So the the first model is Root and Naomi, who, in a certain way, Naomi becomes the omenet. She becomes the sort of Trent J JPS does it as foster mother, but as someone who sort of steps in to care for a child um, in one way or another. And that, that actually 
is, is in the eyes of some modern commentators, a way of thinking about contemporary childcare. So um, that might be more positive and more, uh, let's say, linked to, even linked to a kind of messianic uh, future. Um, okay, great. So can I get someone just to read Root? Okay, I'll read, all right. Um, so the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not withheld a redeemer from you today. May his name be perpetuated in Israel. This is sort of towards the end of the story. He will renew your life and sustain your old age for he is born of your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the child that held it to her bosom and she became its foster mother, right? And she gave the, and the woman neighbors gave him a name saying he is the son, a son is born to Naomi. They named him Ovid and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, right? So he becomes the messianic one. So Mary Benjamin, who's written this wonderful book that you should all read called The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity in Jewish Thought. Um, Mary is also an alum of the Drisha Scholar Circles of Old, Scholars Circle of Old. Um, uses this passage as a way of thinking about what it would look like to envision a world where childcare providers are not treated merely as kind of economic, uh, you know, people you pay to pay to come in and fulfill a role and often pay don't don't pay really well and, and are kind of socioeconomically subjugated in lots of important ways, but actually as part of a shared project. Um, so she says the following, the idyllic, even utopian character of the ending of the story of Root, is indicated by the genealogy in the final verses, which points to the messianic redemption. But beyond the ending, the joy and dignity in Naomi's actions have a redemptive quality. Naomi is a woman for whom the status of Omenet is freely chosen, i.e. in contrast to Moshe, who is like, you, you, did you tell me that I am the Omenic, the Omen? Because I'm kind of stuck here. Clearly, this is not the operative reality for most nannies and babysitters. Their role will only rarely, if ever, be as fully integrated into the self-perception of the family as is Naomi's, Naomi's with Root Boaz and the larger social world of their community. The nanny may be a de facto co-mother or even the primary mother in her own eyes and in the eyes of the child for whom she cares, but it is not officially recognized as such by the parents or the social world beyond them. The idol of Naomi and Root reorients our vision. To take the narrative seriously is to envision a different social world than the one that is, like than one that is, like ours, organized around exploitation. With Root and Naomi, we envision a world in which a person might choose to care for a child alongside its parents, and in which the parents and the larger society would recognize caring labor as creating familial bonds. So for Benjamin, the idea is basically that the um, Naomi sort of who, who then kind of is participating in the messianic line in her own way is um, choosing to enter this role and enters it not in an economically exploitative way, which is often the way that you know, uh, childcare providers are, um, are treated. And therefore she's actually able to be to enter the family as a sort of full member or as a, um, a recognizable member of the family as opposed to someone you hire. And, and, or maybe even someone you hire could be part of the family, but as opposed to someone who is by the fact of being hired 
deliberately excluded from the family. I'd be interested in hearing your reactions, whether this seems plausible to you, crazy, interesting. Yeah, Ozzy raises the, the point that it's very sad that Ruth is not allowed to take care of her own child. Um, definitely complicated, which is not something that Benjamin highlights here. Can you? Uh, yeah, I'm on my phone. I don't even know if I'm like, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, no, my reaction is short. I mean, it sounds nice, but it sounds like Ash, it, it sounds pie in the sky a little. It, it yeah. doesn't sound, sound feasible. Right. The world being what. Right. So I think on the one hand, yeah, like I, I, I kind of agree, like, just to lay my own cards on the table. There's a way in which I agree with you that this story is not one that we can look to as a kind of practical model for like tomorrow, what am I gonna do about like meeting a babysitter, right? Like, it's just not gonna tell you that. Um, on the other hand, I think part of what she's trying to do is, is say that we should read this story as offering a kind of, it's messianic in another sense, right? It's offering a kind of utopia that is not achievable, that is not here today. And like only in some sort of like dramatic world altering situation would we be there, but that there's some value in imagining that world in the same way that like lots of other messianic concepts in Jewish thought are, we find some value in imagining the world of Mashiach, even if we don't think that like actually for that to be possible, you know, the world would have to really radically change. So I think that's the mode in which she's operating. And there's a sense among, among Benjamin, but also among other um, so-called, you know, kind of care ethicists. I don't know if she'd class herself as one, but, but some other philosophers of this ilk talk about the importance of that kind of imagination as a way of helping you kind of get beyond what the, the exploitative world in which we operate. Um, I think that also can be like on the flip side, right? Really, really frustrating. So you're like, well, now what am I going to do in this? I already, I have to find a way to survive in this world where, um, where you know, childcare is often a really exploitative uh, industry and and set of uh, practices. Um, is that deeply unsatisfying to you? Sort of. Yeah. I mean, no, I just feel, I, I wonder, like, I used to read Ruth generally as a, as like a, a lovely tale of um, enduring familial bonds. And now I sort of see, um, I, I, I'm not, I see some, uh, there's some sort of, not baseline exploitation, but, you know, as someone else pointed out, like, she can't care for her own child, and and I don't know how how less exploitative is it to have to to have people like basically what we're saying is like should that person not be compensated, but only be compensated with like respect and love and like isn't th how is that less exploitative in a way? Right, you know? right, and yeah, and so I think that she's sort of skirting around this question, right? Because she says on the one hand, like the thing that's distinctive about Naomi is that Naomi chooses it. But Naomi chooses it under certain kinds of circumstances. What else is she going to do? <laughs> right, right. What else is she going to do? Um, how is she going to kind of operate 
given the constraints that she she's under socially economically kind of just like within the role of women in her society right I mean I think it's really notable even just that right we say the vachikrana it's like the the women around her are like this is great <laughs> but the women around her saying this is great kind of in the background you get a, a more complicated story um maybe the women in the in the neighborhood are also kind of putting certain kinds of pressure on like what what sort of what are kind of socially appropriate options for her to to proceed through so i think on the one hand like this gives us what it means for you no know, me to choose freely um is really complicated and she's sort of saying she leaves open the possibility that it would be okay for a child uh, even in her utopia for the person doing the like no me figure to choose to enter the role of of child care provider um but nonetheless be compensated that it's not the compensation that somehow taints the relationship it's actually some other feature right the exploitative nature of that compensation or the exploitative nature of the society which facilitates that compensation that that's like the thing that goes wrong um and so then it need not be the fact that you're paying the person that that is itself the issue as long as you're doing so you know in a kind of fair way yeah maxine um, yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, Ozzy put something in the chat, which is that, you know, it's pretty common for grandmothers to look after kids while, you know, the mother and father are away working. Um, and so there is something about like the kind of arrangement here where, you know, like Ruth and Naomi have like already this pretty close relationship that it seems um you know, pretty natural for Nomi to be part of this kind of, um, you know, like group of caregivers. Um, and yeah, I just, I think that, that, you know, that kind of situation does happen, but it can only, I mean, but it's, it seems like it, it would be difficult if you didn't have this kind of extended family or these like intergeneral intergenerational relationships. Like I hear from people in Toronto where, you know, most people who are in Toronto are, are from Toronto, but the people who don't are always like, you know, I never have anyone to, I can't just drop my kids off at my parents. And, you know, a lot of the time, like people here just don't really like get that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And I think one thing that hap happens is that like, because of the particular unique bond between Ruth and Naomi, you know, me is able to enter into a role that she otherwise like didn't really have access to that has, it carries a certain kind of social function, certain kind of social cachet, which on the one hand means like, maybe that's what she's always wanted to do. And maybe on the other hand, that's just like the option that's available to her as like a woman of a certain age and a certain social role. Um, sort of this is the whole thing. Thing. true. This is the like, it takes a village and people lament this, I mean, uh, my peers lament this, or you'll see it in, in essays yeah. or whatever. Oh, it's, it's sad that we don't have this village mentality anymore where we live by our family members or whatever. I mean, maybe th this is obviously more specific to certain geographic areas, certainly like in the Northeast, it's the case, but it's like, okay, like we don't, 
<laughs> you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, and I think it's less like it makes sense when you're talking about it in terms of um, people who have those kinds of relationships to one another already, like a mother-in-law or, you know, somebody's mother or whatever. It seems like it might be more complicated of a utopian vision if you're talking about people for, who, with whom you do not have those kinds of familial bonds already to just to have them to have somebody step in and be like you know which is not is obviously not what the actual text says but benjamin kind of leaves open the possibility that she might be talking about that as the kind of messianic setup or yeah right i mean i think what she's talking about is right she says like the distinctive thing is that it's freely chosen but why does Naomi choose to take care of this kid and not some other kid well because he's belongs to root right um and that might not be achievable in another world. Yeah. Maxine, you get the last word. Sorry, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, there's something also about the kind of quasi-Yubum situation here that also makes it more complicated. Like, it's possible that Naomi, you know, could feel that she has some sort of right to have yeah. primary, um, caretaking rights over this child um, since like neither of her, since both of her sons uh, died without having children. And then, you know, the, the daughter-in-law has this responsibility to, you know, have a child for uh, her late husband. Right, right. So I think, I think that's really helpful because it, it helps us understand, again, I think what you're saying can go both ways. On the one hand, it can be, she feels she has a right and therefore she's choosing to do this. Or she feels she has a, there, there's like, right, there's a sort of quasi-ibum situation, and therefore there's a strong cultural norm that she has to take on this job. And it doesn't have to be the case that um, she chooses that freely. Maybe she chooses it because of this strong cultural pressure. So that can kind of cut, I think that that piece of it cuts both ways. Um, but uh, the, the, the direction I want to sort of end with is just to say that there are lots of different ways in which the kinds of forms of intimacy that are created through, through childcare, whether through wet nursing, which is like kind of on one end of the intimacy spectrum or on, you know, the babysitter who comes over for the, for the evening, um, that those relationships are relationships of intimacy in certain ways, and they're created in lots of different ways. Um, and they come out of social contexts that create obligations that you know, can be exploitative or can be really, um, really powerful and productive or both um, in, in different ways. So I think the, the, the story here is one where there's like lots of points of entry into these kinds of intimate relationships and therefore lots of potential points of tension and, and potential exploitation and, and problems, both as we saw in to vote for the, um, for the parents themselves who, maybe going through some, some and, and the people hiring themselves and also for, uh, for the people who are hired. Um, thank you all so much for being such rich discussion partners for these past three sessions. Um, I hope you've enjoyed them and have come out with a little more confusion about rabbinic attitudes or Jewish attitudes to uh, household labor. And um, hope to see you again at some Drisha programming in the future. Thank you so much.
Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you know, uh, for uh, more Drisha programming in the future, um, of course, everyone knows uh, Pesach is coming up. Uh, we have some uh, things coming up, a new uh, Seder and song program that uh, I believe you'll see Noah there. And um, yeah, of course, uh, Seder telling is happening again. Yes, thank you, Noah. There's a, the Pesach stuff has its own website and you can find uh, events and resources from uh, previous years there. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, seeing you again. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Zager. <laughs>